the question, have you ever asked the question, why? Yeah, you probably ask it a lot. Yeah, you probably hear it a lot. Why do I have to go to the doctor? Why do I have to eat my green leaf? Why am I eating cookies for dinner every night? There's lots of why questions we have as kids. We don't stop in childhood with the why questions. We ask why questions as adults as well. Sometimes those adults, we ask them more to ourselves and not quite as much how loud it happens our kids do. But the why questions we ask as adults have very profound implications. Why should I forgive that person who hurt Why should I try to help that person who's struggling? Why should I spend my time investing in other people's lives? This last week we began Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, the text raised some why questions for us. So find Ephesians chapter 4. Because what we saw last week in the first three verses raised the question of why must I seek for unity among believers? Why must I seek to love other Last week, what we saw was foundational. And just to remind you, if you were out last week, we're even to refresh it for all of us. When we started Ephesians chapter 4, we started a new section of this book. Ephesians 1 through 3 is our identity in Christ. We did chapter 4 now to the end of the chapter. Mike, I'm not on this. I don't know. There we go. Can you hear me now? Okay. So last week in Ephesians chapter 4, as I said, it was a transition. It was the beginning of a new section of the book. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we begin with now talking about how we live because of who we are in Christ. So chapters 1 through 3 was our identity in Christ. Now 4, 5, and 6 is how do we live because of it. And so look back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, just for the context so it makes sense of what we're looking at today. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you remember, we're being urged here. He's pleading with us here to walk. That means to live and to live in a certain way. If you remember from the last week, to live in a certain way worthy of our calling. If you remember last week, the word worthy is the word that means axios, axiom, that both have to be in balance on a scale. One through three, here's your identity in Christ. Now four, five, and six, live worthy of that, live in balance of that, live out who God has already said that you are. And the very first commands that Paul gave us in this section of the book of commands is to walk worthy of your calling, to live in balance now, living out who God has said you are, is verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. How do we do it? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we saw last week that God's first command for us here, now you've seen all this of who you are in Christ, now to live that out, to keep it in balance, now pursue a Spirit-given love for each other. That's the command we saw last week, but that leaves the why question. Like the kids asking, why do I not, why do I have to have more than cookies? Or us asking, why do I have to forgive? This text begs a why question for us as well. Why should we pursue a spirit-given love for each other? Why should we seek to live out our calling by showing all these characteristics of peace and patience and and forbearing love and gentleness with one another? Another. Why should we do that, friends? Because that's not natural. That's hard. That can take effort. Our natural response is to be angry, not to be gentle. Our natural response is to be demanding, not patient. Our natural response is to get frustrated with people, not to show forbearing love with them. So why should we seek to be gentle? Why should we seek to be patient? Why should we show forbearing love? Why should we be eager for unity in the church? Well, Paul's not going to give us the answer to all of that. We saw last week in verses 4, 5, and 6. This morning. So as you come to Ephesians 4, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, and I'm reading out the English Standard Version. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Would you pray with me? Father God, I do pray this morning as we look at the why question of why we need to be eager to pursue love for another, why we need to be eager for unity in the body. God, I pray your word would come alive to us. I pray your spirit would open up your word and we'd understand the why of why it is so important for the church to be unified, why it's so important for us to pursue gentle, patient, forbearing love with one another. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give me clarity as I speak. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the truth of the Word of God, and it would transform us this day for your glory and for our joy as your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, so why? Why should we bother this difficult task of pursuing unity? Why should we bother showing forbearing love to one another? Well, I want you to see from verses 4 through 6 this morning this one idea. Here's the answer to the why. Why? Because God calls us to be one body united in one faith to glorify Him. Why bother? Why, kill, why ask the Spirit of God to kill our fleshly desires and us to live with gentleness and patience and humility and forbearing love of one another? Why? Because it's God's calling to us. God calls us to do these things. <clears throat> this is not optional. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is not optional. This is God's call for us. It's God's plan for us. And it's about something much bigger than us. It's much bigger than our small groups, much bigger than Gateway, much bigger than just Montgomery. It's about God being glorified when his people are called together to be united in one faith to glorify him. So I want us to see that in the text this morning. Now, first of all, I'm back in verse number four here. How do we know this is the answer to the why? Because if your translation looks at all like mine, you've had verses one through three. He ends with, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Then all of a sudden he goes into, there's one body. There's no transition here like, let me tell you the reason why this is so important. Or, hey, listen in, here's the main reason why. He doesn't tell us that. How do we know this is the why question answer in verse 4? Well, it's actually because of what is not there. In fact, if you look at verse 4, our translations begin with, there is. Well, the translators put that there to be kind to us. Because there is no there is in the Greek here when Paul is writing this. Paul doesn't give a subject, he doesn't give a verb, he just interjects all of a sudden this. And so three and four flow together like this originally. Paul says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One body, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. What's Paul doing? This guy who is a master scholar, who is very fluent, has perfect grammar, why would all of a sudden he lay all of that aside and in the middle of this flow of thought about being eager for unity start just hitting us with one body, one spirit, one, 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 one. Because he's trying to make a point to us. He's trying to help us see the significance, the importance of what he's just told us, of why we need to be eager to maintain unity, why we need to be eager to show love to one another. And what he's going to show us in these, four, these three verses here is that we need to be eager to do these things because God has called us to do that. Look at this calling of God in verse number four for us. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Notice it says you were called. This sounds like what we just saw last week in verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which we've been called. Here he's repeating the idea of calling. Friends, in the text here, the word calling is passive. That means it's something you and I can't do. We can't call ourselves to God. God has to call us to something. But notice what he calls us to in verse, in verse number 4 here. Just as you were called to the one hope. He's calling us to hope, friends. To hope in what? To hope in knowing Him. To the hope of having our sins forgiven. To having the hope of joy in His presence. To having the hope of being seated at His table. To having the hope of having brothers and sisters seated at the table with us. The hope of Him growing us in godliness. The hope of Him doing far more abundantly than we could ask or imagine and so much more. 
But as you look at verse number four, notice something here about it, because I don't want us to miss this. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the hope that is unique to your situation. Now, how, how many hopes are there? What does it say in the text? How many hopes are there? There's just one hope here. Friends, if you and I are in Christ, we share the same hope. We share the same hope of knowing God. We share the same hope of having our sins forgiven. We share the same hope of growing in godliness. We share the same hope of God doing more than we can imagine. The hope is a hope that we all share. So friends, if we have one calling that unites us, if we have one hope that unites us as well. As Paul's trying to figure out how to describe this unity that comes among believers with one hope and one calling, the best image image he can give for us is that of a human body. Look back at verse 4 again. There is one body. When God saved us, he did not save us, he did not rescue us to be in isolation. He saved us and he actively works to bring us together, to create interdependence between believers' lives. He called us to be a body that is united, as real as how my fingers and your fingers are united to our hands, united to our arms, united to our shoulders, united to our whole body. That type of image is how close our lives are to be intertwined as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is his plan. It is his calling. He is the one who's drawing us to that. He's the one calling us to live this particular way. But it's what's so important to realize in this calling to be unified, to be a body, and as Seth warned us about so aptly a few weeks ago, you can be unified about the wrong things. History shows you that. But we all can point to churches that are unified around the wrong things. But there's another equal danger to that I want to make sure we see this morning as well. Not only can we be united around the wrong things, we can be united about nothing. We live in a culture that says be united around what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me. There's churches that unite around the idea of you believe whatever you want to believe. But friends, that's not the church. That's not God's plan. That's not what God is calling us to be united in. And in fact, what we saw last week of this attitude of humility and gentleness and patience, that does not preclude us from having confidence in our faith. <clears throat> I think in our culture so often the time, friends, we associate humility with, I guess the best southern word would be being wishy-washy. That you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. But that's not what the church is. We're called by God to be one body Not a body where what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for you, but a body where we are united in one faith, where we are united in our beliefs about certain things. And we can be humble about that and still be united and confident in our faith with a common confession at our core. In fact, a lot of scholars think these verses we're reading this morning, verses 4 through 6, were actually a confession. The early church took what Paul said here and they made this a confession that in their services they would actually recite out loud these things that we have just read. They would, in their services, proclaim that they believe in one body and one spirit and one call and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all. So as we think about unity of believers, we think about God calling us not just to be me alone with Jesus, but calling us together to be the church together, to be so intertwined in our lives that we are a body. We need to make sure we're united around certain beliefs that are important. And as we look at this, what is it that united the people in Ephesus? People of all these different backgrounds. What is it that unites the people of Gateway? What is it that unites the believers across all the churches of Montgomery? I want you to see from this text this morning, I believe there's four things that have to unite us. Four things in this text, in the midst of these seven ones that he mentions to us here, I believe they all come together into four key confessions we need to have if we're going to have true biblical unity of being called by God to be one body united in one faith. The first thing that God unites us together in this belief is a belief in who God is. The first thing that we have to be, if we're going to have true unity, we have to have, be united in our belief about who God is. Do you notice in our text this morning, all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned? 
Verse 4, there's one spirit. Verse 5, there's one Lord. Verse 6, there's one Father. You see all three persons of the Trinity mentioned here in this confession. This is a confession that we together are united in our belief in one true God who shows himself as three persons, the mystery that we call the Trinity, that we are united in that, believing that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each fully God, that all of them have all the attributes of God all the time. There's so many wrong teaching that floats around out there that the Father is a God of wrath and Jesus is a, is, is a God of mercy. And that's not true. God is fully all the attributes all the time. That means the Spirit of God, the Son of God, and the Father all have all the attributes of God all the time. In fact, we get a glimpse of some of his attributes in this confession here. Look at verse 6. And don't pass over these words that Paul goes fast. This is incredible what he's proclaiming in verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. What is the early church here in Ephesus confessing? What is Paul telling them to unite around? Well, notice that first phrase, he's the father of all. He's saying, be united in the fact and believing that God is the creator. He's the father of all things. He's the one who spoke and the world came into being. He's the one who can speak and the dead come to life. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's the creator and the one through, from which everything came. He's the only one with no beginning and no end. He's the one who began everything that we experience. He's the father of of all. That's not the only attribute that we're confessing here. There's one God and Father of all who is over all. This is another way to describe his sovereignty. Sovereignty is just a big word that means his rule, his reign. That God is sovereign. He is absolutely in control of all things. Friends, there's not one molecule, not one atom that moves in the universe that he's not in control of. God is over everything that happens. God is absolutely sovereign. A bird doesn't fall to the ground that he doesn't know about. A hair doesn't fall out of our head that he doesn't know about. No, no electron moves without him knowing it. He is the absolute sovereign ruler of everything in our lives and everything in all of creation and all that exists. He is the father of all who is over all. But there's still more that can be said about God's attributes. He's one God and father of all who is over all and through all. This means that he's all-powerful. The big word we use for that, he's omnipotent, omni-all-potent power, omnipotent, all-powerful. God is all-powerful. He is through all. What God wants to do, God can do. God can make the sun stop shining. God can change the tilt of the earth that he wants to. God can speak and let oceans part and there be dry ground. God can do whatever God wants to do. He is all-powerful. And his, in his, the command of his voice, atoms can move. Whatever God wants to do, God does. He is through all. He is all-powerful. There's one last one Paul puts in the confession here in verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In all means he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Omni all present where he's located. He is everywhere. We see it in the Psalms. There's, the question is raised, where can I go to hide from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. There's nowhere you can escape the presence of God. There's no place you can get to as deep in the earth, as far into space you want to go, that you can escape the presence of God. God is everywhere. And so in verse 6 we have this incredible confession not only is there one God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, but this triune God is the creator who's sovereign, who's all-powerful, who is everywhere. The church is to be united, friends, as one body, but not you believing about God what you want to believe about God, and I believe about God what I want to believe about God. That's not unity. Unity is us together believing in the sovereign creator, the triune God who speaks the world into being, who sovereignly rules everything that happens, who is everywhere and all-powerful, and he can do what he wants us to do. That's the type of unity God calls us to. But there's more in this confession of what we're united in. The second thing we're to be united is our belief in Christ as Lord. Our belief in Christ 
as the Lord. Look at verse 5. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now notice the terminology Paul uses. In verse 4, he says, there's one spirit. In verse 6, he says that there's one father. If I was writing, I would expect to put here in verse 5, there's one son. Because we often talk about the Trinity in terms of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Paul breaks that. He's talked about the Spirit, he talks about the Father. Now he breaks that, and he instead uses the term Lord here. Why? Because he's making a particular confession here that we need to be united in. The word Lord means my boss, my master, my ruler, the one I submit my life to, the one who is in control of my life. Friends, the church is to be united in submitting to Christ as our boss, as our master, as our ruler. Friends, if you think that being follower of Christ is, I can pray a prayer and not go to hell and live like I won't, you're not a follower of Christ. You've heard me say that over and over again, but we can't repeat that one enough. If we really are a follower of Christ, there will be lordship in our life. Not that we'll have it perfect, but that we will have a desire in our heart to submit to him as our boss. That we will not seek to order our life the way we want to order our lives, but we will instead let him be our master. If there's no desire for him to be our master, there is no salvation as well. They go hand in hand. And this is a confession together, that we're together submitting our lives to Jesus as our master, as our boss, as our ruler. And we're seeking him for grace to do that. We're seeking him to fill us with the one spirit who will grow us in ways that we can't grow ourselves. Who will produce in us godliness and desires for godliness that we cannot do on our own. And so God is calling us to be one body. Just as our body parts are all intertwined, we're called to be one body intertwined. But intertwined and connected and unified in our belief about who God is. But secondly, united in our belief that Christ is Lord. And that together we're going to encourage each other to submit to Christ as our Lord, our Master as our boss. But there's more, friends. There's a third confession here that we're to be united in, and that's in our commitment to living together in community. There's a, in this confession, is a commitment to live together in community. Look back at verse number four here. There is one body and one spirit. When we hear this talk about being one body, that's not just some nice talk. This is to be reality. The best image Paul can use to describe how you and I are to relate as brothers and sisters is the human body. He's saying your lives are to be that interdependent. That means I need you, you need me, you all need one another. So again, do what we did last week. Look around the room for a second. I'm going to stretch your neck, look around the room. Yeah, yeah, you need everyone around you, and everyone around you needs you. Just as your arm is not very helpful if they got severed from your body, you're not going to be what you need to be if you're severed from everybody else around you. We're to be that intertwined. In fact, this image is so important. Flip back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because Paul uses the same imagery again when writing to the people in Corinth. Is this important to God, this important to Paul, and should be this important to us? And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he explains more about what it means for us to be interdependent as the body. What this confession, when he just simply says one body, he tells us what he means by it here in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, this sounds a lot like what he just wrote to the people in Ephesus, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I think Paul likes the word one, doesn't he? We see the word one to the people in Ephesus. Here it is, one, 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 one again. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? 
the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members. This is the idea of calling. It's God's work. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So let's go back to Ephesians 4. The whole point of this, the one body confession, is a confession that I cannot live out the Christian life alone. Friends, you nor I can be the body of Christ in isolation. You nor I can live out this reality of the body of Christ alone by ourselves. There is no place then for a lone ranger Christian. There's no place for an isolated Christian. We need one another. And we need the one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to unite us together to make us brothers and sisters who love each other and have a unity within our midst. So we're united together in a confession and one faith that God has given to us, a faith in who he is, a faith in the lordship of Christ, a commitment now to living in communion. But there's one more I want you to see in this text, a confession that unites us, and that is our faith being public. We're united in a confession that we're going to take our faith public outside the walls of the church. Look at verse 5. It says there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Okay, how am I getting, we're taking our faith public from one baptism hill? Well, baptism, friends, is a symbol where a person shows their faith in Christ. Now, our culture's added a lot of other things. Walking aisles, lifting your hand, praying prayers, everyone clapping when you do these things. But, friends, those aren't bad, but those are not the New Testament public confession of faith. The only thing in the Bible that is evident of showing that you're a follower of Christ is baptism. That's why that's what we stress here more than those other Things Baptism was public for the people in Ephesus. When they got baptized, it wasn't going to be privately just in front of their family. It would be a more public thing. If you look at church history, throughout church history, when people got baptized, it became known in the community, and it became costly for so many. Even today, all over the world, when people get baptized, they get cut off from their spouse, their parents, and their friends. There's people, when they get baptized today, who lose their jobs. There's people who get ostracized. They get put in prison because of that. Friends, baptism throughout all of church history has been the public way that someone says, I am a follower of Christ and I want the world to know, even if it costs me everything. This one baptism is not just saying, okay, we're going to be baptized believers. It's a, it's a commitment. It's a confession that we're going to take our faith public. There's another thing that's implied in this that I think shows us that our faith is to be public. And it's not so much what's said as what's not said here. And there's only one body, friends. That means there's only two types of people in the world. Those who are part of that body and those who are not. If there's only one hope, there's only two types of people in the world. Those who found that hope and those who don't have that hope. If there's only one faith, again, there's only two types of people in the world. And you know where I'm going with this now. There's those who have this faith and those who don't. If there's only one God, there's only two types of people in the world. Either those who have belief in the one true God or those who don't. There's only two types of people in the world. In fact, I want you to see it on the screen. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, gives us very much this clear differentiation. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Either we believe in Christ and are God's child, or we don't believe in Christ and we're not. There's no middle ground. There's no other ways. It's either we're followers of Christ or we are not. So our text just points out with all these ones, but I think the implication we can draw from that is if we're part of the body, who does God want to use to help others find the body? And that's us. If we found hope, who does God want to use for others to find that hope? He wants to use us as well. If we're the ones who have found faith in Christ by his mercy and his calling, who's the one God's going to work through to call other people? He's going to work through us. 
Right, so we'll just see 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You've seen it before, but it's one that is really important for the life of the church. Peter writes here this time, and it's different images than Paul used, but the same idea. You're a chosen race. That's corporate, together. You're a royal priesthood. That's corporate, plural, together. You're a holy nation. That's corporate, plural, together. That's community. You're a people, together. Same idea as the body that Paul was writing here. A people for God's own possession. It's his work. It's his calling. He's the one putting us together as a race, a priesthood, a nation of people. Why? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us, so that you may proclaim, literally you may shout out the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But notice something here. Our calling is one body, united in one faith with one hope. What's our calling to do? We're to proclaim his excellencies. My friends, I feel like, at least in American Christianity, we've proclaimed the wrong thing. So much of American Christianity proclaims the excellencies of people. You're so amazing. God loves you. God doesn't want heaven without you there with him. God wants you so bad. You're so amazing. It starts in kids' stuff, and it goes all the way through adults. And so much of our evangelism has been, you're amazing, and God wants you. That's not what we're to proclaim. We're to proclaim his excellencies. The reality is, you and I, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. We have nothing to bring to the table except for our sin. Yet God, in his mercy, and his excellencies, does what we can't do, and he rescues us. He calls us out of darkness. The message we proclaim is we're in darkness. We're not part of the body. You're outside of hope. You're not one of God's children. But guess what? God and His excellencies can do what you can't do, and He can take you from darkness into light. And so, friends, together as one body, united in one faith of who God is and submitting to the lordship of Christ and living together in community, we also agree and commit to one another to make Christ known to other people. And, friends, when the church does that, when the church is united, not around some just whatever's fun for us, or not just united around what feels good for you and what feels good for me. We're united in a common faith in God, in a common faith in the Lordship of Christ, in a common faith in community, in a common faith in making Him known. When that happens, friends, it brings God great glory. Back to our main idea. God calls us to be one body, united in one faith, to glorify Him. And that's what it's all about. We've already seen it in Ephesians chapter 1, two different times, the phrase, to the praise of His glory the praise of his glory. Our lives are not about us. Our church is not about us. It's about the praise of his glory. My friends, that's so good because he deserves it. We've just sung about the greatness of God this morning, and we see it now. Look back at verse 6 as well. This is the one who's all glorious, one God and Father of all, who is over all. He's sovereign. He's through all. He's all-powerful. He's in all. He's everywhere. He is the one who deserves the glory. But friends, as we see him for who he is, as we proclaim his excellencies, as we glimpse at his glory, friends, not only does he get glorified, friends, we get full of hope. Remember, he's called us to one hope. They go hand in hand. He gets the glory. We get the hope. We get the joy. But friends, with that, there's a sobering warning for us in this text as well. Last week I mentioned to you the question of if we're called to show patience and humility and gentleness and forbearing love, why do we not have it so much of the time? And last week we saw that part of the issue is our own flesh, our own simple tendencies that get in the way and break the unity that God has created and given to us. And I want to remind us this morning as well, there's another reason this is so not common. That what Paul has laid out for us of having gentleness and patience and humility and forbearing love, another reason it's lacking, friends, because there's a very real enemy named Satan or Lucifer who really hates the glory of God. And he's going to do all he can to steal the glory from God. 
You think back to Lucifer, most beautiful angel. When he fell, why did he fall? Because he wanted the glory for himself, not for God. He was jealous that God got the glory. So the root of everything that the devil, Satan, Lucifer, whatever name you want to use, the root of what he's doing is he is he hates God being glorified. So keep that in mind. If, friends, God has called us to be one body united in one faith to glorify him, what is Satan going to be up to? Don't you think the enemy understands what happens when believers are united? Don't you think Satan understands what happens when believers are united in a common faith, united in a common submission to Christ the Lord and seeking to grow in holiness together? Understand the glory of that God gets glory when we together live in community and together as community make the gospel known. He understands the glory God gets in those situations. So he's going to do all he can to stop it. Is it any wonder so much of our home lives so much of the church lives around this city and all across this land are filled with division and pride and arrogance, all these things instead of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearing love. Is any wonder? Because there's a very real enemy who's going to do all he can to stop it. He's going to do it in two ways. First, he's going to try to deceive us. Not just deceive the lost. They're, they're already deceived. He's going to try to deceive us in the body. He's going to try to deceive us. We, thought, we talked about the four things we're united on. He's going to try to deceive us in all those. He's going to try to deceive us on who God is, on God's character. I think he's done a pretty good job in the American church doing that. If you talk to most people just on the street about who God is, oh, God's a God of love. What about justice and wrath? Oh, no, no, God's not like that anymore. So he's done a really good job in our culture deceiving people about the attributes of God and the character of God and who God is. But we have a God who is fully loved but also fully wrathful. A God who's fully merciful but also fully just. And we need to know God for who he is, the one Father of all who is fully all of his attributes all the time. But Satan's going to try to deceive believers about the character of God. Satan's also going to try to deceive believers about the lordship of Christ that we're to be united in. Again, how many people do you know who've said, hey, I know, Pastor, that I'm okay. I prayed a prayer when I was in vacation Bible school. I prayed a prayer with my parents. I know I'm going to heaven, but no, no, don't, don't ask me to live for Jesus now. There's so many people who've been so deceived to think they're okay in going to heaven when there's no lordship in their lives. He's deceiving. Reality is we're called to confess one Lord. But Satan's going to do all he can not only deceive in who God is and in the lordship of Christ, also in community. How many believers are out there who think it's just not worth the trouble? You know, I'm okay if I just do the one hour a week in church. That's all the Lord needs from me. I'm okay. When the reality is the confession of New Testament Christianity is we're to be one body, as intertwined as the, our own body parts are in one body. Satan deceives about community. Yet Satan also tries to deceive us about our responsibility to go public with our faith. How many excuses are there that come to our minds about, well, that's for the pastors or the evangelists or the missionaries, or you won't know what to say, or they'll laugh at you, or whatever else happens, and we shut our mouths instead of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. So it seems like the enemy is having a field day in American Christianity and perhaps all over the world as well, deceiving us to keep God from being glorified because we're not united around who God is. We're not united around the Lordship of Christ. We're not united in community. We're not united in taking our faith public. But not only is he going to deceive, Satan's going to work really hard within the body to divide because he knows what a threat united believers are. When we together are united with a common faith and together are loving one another with verses 1 through 3 with a gentleness and a humility and a patience and a forbearing love and an eagerness in our heart for unity, when that happens, God moves. And he knows God moves. And he knows that God gets glory. So he's going to do all he can to create division between us because divided believers are not a threat to him. But the good news, friends, is he doesn't have to prevail. We serve a God who's bigger, 
and more powerful. And even if he's won some battles in the past, friends, if we are in Christ, we have the Spirit of God within us who will fill us, grow us, and direct us. And as we'll see when we get to Ephesians 6, eventually, he will give us grace to hold up that shield of faith to silence the lies of the adversary. He's going to give us grace to live out Ephesians 4 and how we treat one another. And so, friends, by God's grace, the lies of the enemy, even if they prevailed before in our lives, can be silenced today. And division where it's existed can be healed by the power of God even today. And so, with that in view, I want you to hear all of this together. Go back to chapter 3, verse 20. Listen to the flow of thought and think about what's at stake and what God can do in His powers. He calls us to be one body, united in one faith, to glorify Him. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one Spirit. Just you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are the all-glorious one. God, we praise you that you are the only one who is sovereign. You are the only one worthy of praise. And God, I pray in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, God, that you would capture us with your greatness. This week, you would let us see how big and awesome you are, how majestic you are. God, you would comfort us with how sovereign you are and how powerful you are and how you're ever-present with us. But Lord, I pray for us as a people at Gateway, that God, that you would be continuing this work you're doing of uniting us and drawing us closer, to, closer and closer together as one body. God, would you be bringing us together as one body, not for us, God, but for your glory to be known. Or drawing us together as one body where we really understand who you are. Father, we can spend our whole life studying your word and never cease to discover how amazing you are and new truths about how awesome you are. So God, would you be growing us as a body of believers at Gateway to better understand your character? Would you be growing us as a body of believers at Gateway to want your lordship, to want to submit to you as our, as our boss, as our master? Would you be growing us in godliness as a result? But God, would you also be growing us out of our private lives into a deeper community together to share life, to be vulnerable, to be real with one another, that we can encourage one another and pray for one another and really live out being the body, interdependent lives. Lord, I trust that as you do those things, you're also going to be pushing us outward. But we live in a city with so many people who do not know the hope of Christ. Who don't have this hope that we have of knowing you and being seated at your table. Who don't understand what it's like to be joined to a body and have a community deeper than anything they've ever experienced. God, would you this week open our eyes to that lostness around us, to that hopelessness around us? Would you this week as you remind us of the hope we have and the joy we have being part of a body, would you drive us out to be your mouthpiece as you invite others into that life as well. Lord, we'll give you the praise for it, Lord, because it's not about us. It's not about Gateway making a name for herself. It's not about us making names for ourselves. It's about you having the glory as the all-glorious one. And we'll give you the praise. So, Spirit of God, would you work in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters this week to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine? And Lord, with that, I pray as well, if the enemy has been deceiving any of us, because we're all vulnerable, Lord, we're all weak apart from your grace, if there's any lies that have hit my heart or the heart of these brothers and sisters, would you this week open our eyes to those lies 
whether it's lies about your character or lies about lordship and holiness, lies about community, or lies about evangelism, whatever it is, God, would you let us see those lies and would you give us grace upon grace upon grace to hold up that shield of faith, to hear truth from you and not the, the whispers of the lies of the enemy. And Lord, as well, if there's any division in this body, or whether it's in someone's home between a husband and a wife, between parents and children, between neighbors, between friends, God, would you this week just let there be healing where the enemy has wrought division? And I pray we'll see marriages healed, friendships healed, and just you doing again far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. Lord, again, so you get the glory, and we find the joy of our one hope and our calling in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song? Thank <laughs> you.